I think it's it's really hard for people to discuss these kind of changes because they don't want to think about the worst case scenario. Right. I don't have that same fear because I've lived it. And I'm like, okay, the worst thing that could happen is you don't discuss it. Honestly, that creates the most stress in your life. And the most loving thing you could do is give the gift of pre-planning and having everything lined up. It's really the most loving gesture you can give your spouse and your children. Welcome to the Healthy Love and Money Podcast. If you find money to be the number one, two, or even third largest source of stress in your relationship, then you're in the right place. Going beyond how to budget, invest, and do your taxes, we're going to explore financial intimacy. Discover how to talk with your partner about your shared financial life. Let's take the awkward and painful out of money conversations. Join me and hit follow to listen to weekly inspiring, healing, and motivating interviews with financial therapists, couples therapists, and financial planners, and so many more. Let's go on the journey of financial intimacy together. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Healthy Love and Money Podcast. Today, it's my distinct honor to welcome Angela Green to the show. She's an occupational therapist, a neuro nerd, and just a delight to be with. Now, Angela and I met in a unique way. We were both visiting Yosemite Valley, had never met each other, and we're in this little historical museum, and my kids are putzing around, and my son lifts up this 3D imaging thing, and he's like, whoa, how does this work? And how did they know how to do this way back in the day? And Angela just happens to overhear this conversation, and she says, well, it's, and I can't remember what you said, Angela, to be honest, but you explained the dynamics. I said, wait, how do you know that? She said, well, I'm an occupational therapist, and I do a lot of brain anatomy work. And so so one thing led to another. We had an incredible conversation in this little historical museum. What was it? Mariposa County, I think, close to Yosemite. Yep, yep. Mm-hmm. As I, being who I am, I was like, Angela, I've got this podcast. Would you be willing to come on as a guest and talk about your knowledge and experience from an occupational therapy perspective? And she said, well, okay, let's do it. So here she is today to share all the wonderful things, occupational therapy and life journey. Angela, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. And, and thank you for having me. And it was a pleasure to meet you then and a pleasure to be on your show. Yep. So I'm an OT. I've been an occupational therapist almost 30 years. Um, started off my career mostly working in orthotics and or, or orthopedics and then moved into neuro rehab and have been in that field ever since. I have kind of a unique background because I have served the role as caretaker for my both of my parents as they moved in their transition and passed away. Also, my own brother, who's just a few years older than me, sadly. So a lot of personal experience dealing with families through all the changes that happen in their life, as well as personal experience as a caregiver and kind of learning how to see around corners for people is the best way I could say what I do. Oh, I like that image of like, I, you know, I help people try to take a look around the corner of what's to come. And, mm-hmm. you know, I have found the best professionals are the ones that like, it's not just a professional job. It's a personal job that's grown into a professional job because you, mm-hmm. you say it on your website, takingcareofolderpeople.com, which I, I love the website and the image. It's so fun, but is I just lost my train of thought, Angela. What's happening with my neurology? That's okay. <laughs> it's taking care of our family members. No, I just completely lost it. So we're just going to keep on going. My brain, okay. if it picks it up, we'll come back to it. Well, I, I could talk about the website briefly. I don't make any money on it, even though there are Amazon products or anything on it. I did it as a labor of love because I've worked with so many individuals who don't know a pathway forward when they have an illness or disability 
happened to them or how to manage their disease process. And my goal was to keep people out of the hospital and keeping them aging in place as much as possible. So I try to decrease the learning curve. And so takingcareofoldpeople.com, like I said, was my service to others. You know, I, I believe in servant leadership. And if they can prevent a hospitalization just by like checking their blood pressure and what the parameters are supposed to be, I try to give you like the owner's manual <laughs> on how to navigate things for yourself. <laughs> you know, you use the word learning curve and it just seems that so much of life is just this ongoing learning curve. And we've become expert in this little area that is actually really big and and more complicated, and we don't want to make it overly complicated for folks, but it's, you've lived through this transition now a gazillion times, your own personally, and then with so many other clients, and same for me. But for most people going through life, they're only going to go through this transition once or twice, right? Like maybe they saw something with mom, dad, and their grandparents, how much you learn from that. But then you're up against it, taking care of your parents, and you're learning for the first time. And so there's incredible people like Angela who have an occupational therapy background, which is a unique lens on helping people. So can you explain what that is before we get into like things people can be thinking about? Oh, sure, sure. Throughout the lifespan, I like to describe what I do. I ask people, what do you do? Most people tell me what they get paid to do. Uh-huh. They didn't tell me that they got up this morning, they were able to use the bathroom by themselves, they were able to dress themselves, make a meal, handle their finances, or all the other things that occupy your time. And these are the things that, from a psychological standpoint, your sense of self, they kind of help you shape and define who you are. I'm an independent person and all the roles you may fulfill. So I might be a mother, I might be a daughter, I might be a spouse, caregiver, and anything that interferes with your ability to execute those roles. So maybe suddenly you have a spinal cord injury and you're in a wheelchair now, or you've had a stroke and everything's been turned upside down. How do we work around those things to restore function when possible or compensation strategies when that's not possible? So that's, I look at everything you do from the time you get up in the morning to the time you go to bed and I analyze what does it take to do those things? And again, my goal overall is to try to restore that sense of self when possible. Wow. There's so much in there just even to understand and unpack is the word sense of self, right? That's a shared language in your profession and mine as a psychotherapist and couples therapist is we're often working with people's sense of self, but we're not, what I think is so unique about the occupational therapy world that I'm coming to appreciate more and more is they're really looking at how do we help people fulfill very practical, functional activities of living. I think the, the insurance language is ADLs, activities of daily living and trying to get those restored, but there's probably many more. And I guess when you're going up, through most of your adult life, you can take for granted all the little things you're able to do. But then when you have a life event that inhibits your ability to wipe your butt or to wash your hand as your brother lost one arm, and now he's got to figure out how to wash his hand with one hand. I was mm-hmm. in the grocery store yesterday, and there's a wonderful young lady checking us out, and she was missing both of her thumbs. I don't know why, but it, it's interesting to watch what she had to do to bag the groceries for me relative mm-hmm. to the other checkers. So I mean, there's just so many places in life where your type of work can show up, isn't there? Absolutely. All, all stages from, from infancy and normal development for children into adolescents and into adults. I've spent most of my time working with adults. Occasionally, I've dabbled with uh, some teenagers, but I have to say my preference is adults. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's probably true for most of us professionals. We find kind of a group of people within our profession that we really enjoy working with. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, as you're 
do the work with your clients. What are some of those big lessons that you learned about helping adults transition through change, especially when they've had these life events? Well, it's always eye-opening because uh, we're looking for a home right now. And one of my criteria is that the house be all on one level or easily accessible and reconfigurable. Nobody thinks about that until it hits the fan. And suddenly now you have to navigate in a wheelchair and you find out that the lovely builder of your (laughs) tri-level has bathrooms on different levels than you need to be on, right? And the doorways are like 20 inches wide when they need to be 36 inches wide to even get into be able to use your own bathroom. So it's stuff like that that I come across a lot. Simplification of use, ease of access from like everything from getting in and out of your car to in and out of your home. I don't want my own home to be a barrier ever. And if I'm going to age in place, I'm going to make sure that it meets my needs now and in the future and my husband's needs. What do you think helps people develop that ability to kind of forecast into the future about future needs? That you know, For me as a planner, it almost feels like it's just instinctual as part of who I am. But I, I realize that's not true for so many people. So as an OT, how do you help people start to make plans for both kind of present and future needs? I think it, it's very hard unless you put somebody in a wheelchair and ask them to navigate their home, then they get it. You know, it's very concrete <laughs> and literal example. <laughs> I do a lot of education and training on that. It's working with the family members to help them understand as well if there are family members available to help best support the patient. Because I don't just work with the patient, I work their surrounding support system too. Because in a lot of cases, folks need a lot more support. Like they might need help making meals or assistance going to the bathroom or getting dressed. Or how do you decrease the burden of care on the caregiver, empower the patient to do the highest level of function there is achievable? Because there's that dignity thing again, right? <laughs> it sounds like this really, like imagine this balance. It's a balancing act. Yes. And does the caregiver want that role? A lot of times the caregiver doesn't want that role. So women, and I'm not to be sexist, but naturally we tend to fall into the group of caregiver. But in a lot of cases, the fellow may be the caregiver and they, it may just be too much for them. So I really appreciate you highlighting this because right, it's not to be sexist, but if you look at the statistical level, women are in the large majority of being the caregivers in families and for yep. aging partners. And demographically, they're going to live longer. So like, you have that piece. And that I imagine that's a burden just even in anticipation of like, well, kind of almost resonates. Well, I guess I'm going to be the one who cares for them because that's my, been my role in the family. So you have those dynamics for women. But then you have the other side of men who, like, it's just my brother and I, and I guess my wife, you know, I'm not I'm not playing my wife picking up the role of caring for my aging parents. But as a male caregiver, what does that mean for me? And some of the identity issues and practical issues that show up around that is there's a lot there, isn't there? There's a whole lot. I mean, there's a, a fiscal responsibility. When I took care of my parents, at that point I was a single parent and had two boys to raise at the same time. So a lot of us are jammed into the situation where you may not have income or limited income yourself and contributing to your own retirement while you're trying to support them if they haven't planned well and make sure they're in the best environment possible. Other scenarios are if they are in a facility, you know, the facility will eat away at any savings you have. It's going to evaporate. So whoever the remaining spouse is can be left really high and dry. What's, you know, your, I know there's a wide range of costs for facilities, but kind of a, a normative range for facility costs. What are we talking about? So you have a Part A benefit. And that covers like hospitalization and it covers home health care. 
It covers your inpatient rehab stay, and it'll cover the first 100 days of a stay at a skilled nursing facility. They also call that rehab. It's when people can't tolerate five days a week for 15 hours, like three hours of therapy a day. They may not be able to qualify for an inpatient rehab stay, which is a much more intensive program. So they go to a skilled nursing facility for rehab. And back in the day, it used to be covered 100%, but now there's contributions a patient has to make to their Medicare Part A. So if you're in the facility less than 20 days, it's covered 100%, if I recall correctly. And I would seek direct advice about this because it changes all the time. But then there's an increased copay as you progress through that 100th day. Well, when you get to that 100th day, then you have to make a decision. Am I able to bring this person home and care for them in the way that they need medically, physically, emotionally, nurturing and all of that? Or do I keep them in the facility and they convert to Medicare Part B outpatient, but the cost for the facility could be 10 to 20 grand a month. And in which case you it's you either sell all your assets and, and have a, a look back period of seven seven years, I think, for most states to see if you qualify for Medicaid, which will cover the cost to a certain extent. And if that facility accepts Medicaid, which is a state-run program, right, which basically means you have no assets, you have no money. Or like in my father's case, he drove a bus in New York City for 30-something years. He had a pension. And as long as he was alive, he could collect the pension. But I had to set up a trust for him so that if he stayed in the facility, they would basically access all of the money owed past due upon his death. Oh, right, right. This is right. So, so if, if you're a couple relying on a pension, that pension's going to go completely away. It's going to go to pay for the cost of the facility. Right. So, I just want listeners to take a breath because they might be going into panic attack mode or they might be shutting down <laughs> in the nervous system as they're hearing this information because there's a lot to be considered here. And this is foreign territory for most folks. And Look, even as a therapist and financial planner, just hearing some of this, I'm like, oh yeah, oh yeah, yes, of course. There's all these things to be considered and worked through and navigated. And so I think to me, the message is you don't have to do this alone. There are skilled, knowledgeable professionals. Angela, you talked about the caregiving unit. Is It's not just mm-hmm. one person that's going to care for an aging parent. It's typically going to be an OT. It might be a therapist for you to to process your own emotions. It might be a financial planner to help you understand all the insurance and asset and financial planning strategies you can use. So you got to start being able to build a team around you to, to really move through this big family transition. I think it's it's really hard for people to discuss these kind of changes because they don't want to think about the worst case scenario. Right. I don't have that same fear because I've lived it. And I'm like, okay, the worst thing that could happen is you don't discuss it, honestly. That creates the most stress in your life. And the most loving thing you could do is give the gift of pre-planning and having everything lined up. It's really the most loving gesture you can give your spouse and your children. So let's talk about that more, right? Because I think, you know, I was just reading one of my therapy books, I can't remember, was talking about death anxiety and how, you know, the therapist's role is helping people get comfortable talking about their own death. And so it becomes a gift to yourself because you live more richly and fully. And I think that builds really nicely on what you're talking about is we do have, many of us have this fear of talking about our own death or, or demise. And that fear is understandable to some extent, but what's left on the backside of not working through that fear is even worse. So what, what do you see when families 
don't have those open conversations? What kind of challenges do you see them face? I think it leaves a lot of anger and frustration and an undue burden on the people you leave behind. And I don't think that is folks' intention, but the fear, as you said, the death anxiety leads them not to make those decisions. But at the end of the day, it really has a huge impact on those you leave behind if you force them into these really difficult circumstances. When you could have made the plan, when you're cognizant, able to make your own decisions, you could have at least outlined basic things. I mentioned five wishes is a great format to outline, you know, kind of like your power of attorney, your healthcare power of attorney. What are your wishes? When my mother was dying, we never discussed dialysis. It was like, would she want to be on it or not? And at the end of the day, the default was she did not want life support of any kind. She was very adamant. And even though I had to put her on it temporarily, I made it clear that this is not a thing we're going to stay on. It's only to stabilize her for a day or two, and then we're taking her off. But it was very hard to make those decisions. For my sons and my husband, they have it all in writing. They know exactly what to do. I, I tried because I'm in healthcare. I, ha- I could think of a lot more things than the average person might. But my goal at the end of the day is to love them when I can't do that verbally emotionally anymore when I'm unable to do that, but love them beyond that by making these decisions for them so they don't have to suffer during the worst time of their life when something horrible is happening to me and they're grieving for that, that loss. I'm trying to prevent that. I don't want to put that burden on them. Well, it sounds like you know that burden from your own experience of being backed into the metaphorical psychological corner. Is Oh, it's awful. It's a terrible place to be. And did, so it sounds like maybe you felt some of your own anger and resentment towards your parents in that. A lot of frustration. Yeah. 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 A lot of frustration. How did you open those conversations with your husband and with your sons about your five wishes? Yeah. They saw what I went through. My son saw what I went through with my parents and they just were, were like horrified <laughs> at the experience. So I think they welcomed it a lot. My husband thinks he's going to live forever. So that's a different conversation. <laughs> right. <laughs> but I know, I mean, there's a very good chance I could outlast him, right? Like looking at houses now, we're having these great debates on what kind of, what's the optimal house. And I look at it like it could be a beautiful home, but if it's not functional and you can't live in it, it doesn't matter how pretty it is when you live in a facility, right? Because <laughs> you can't live there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a really powerful point. Right. But it's it's this yeah. journey of conversation back and forth between you and your husband about the way he's wired. It's and a negotiation. Yeah. Well, it's yeah. I think it's just normalizing like our spouses are often not wired the same way as us to think about the problem the same way. They, you know, like it sounds like I'm all in on thinking about my own death and planning for it. And your husband's like, ah, I'd rather not think about it. And we're just going to I'm live forever. Yeah. We love each other so much. We don't want to leave a burden on either one of us behind. We have that understanding that if one of us goes before the other, the other person can manage the property, can handle it, can still live independently for as long as possible. That opens up another question for me that I'm always intrigued by is the level of financial transparency that couples practice and how that impacts times of transition. So I imagine both in your own personal life, as well as with many families you've worked with, there's a can be a really large gap between what one person knows and what the other person knows financially what's going on. Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to the Healthy Love and Money podcast. I'm honored that you spend time with me listening to these incredible interviews. 
I love working with individuals and couples around their financial life, integrating mental health and relational well-being. I'd love to personally invite you into my financial planning practice where I do therapy-informed financial planning, bringing together mental health, relationship health, and financial well-being. If you're thinking that's the type of help you'd like, please see the show notes below to schedule your free 30-minute discovery call. And I'll look forward to seeing you and hearing more about your unique story and how I can best support you. Now, back to the show. It's very true. And I'm approaching 60 years old now, which I can't believe my God here, but I am. <laughs> you made it. And Yay. back in the day, in the culture I grew up with in New York City, a very Italian family, the man handled everything. The woman was basically a mushroom in the dark, right? So they had no idea when the man passed away first, which is likely to happen, how to handle anything. And very early on, I was like, I, I'm not going to take a back seat because this impacts both of us. And when we agreed to get married, we were very transparent with the finances. We worked on a budget together. We did not want a parental type relationship where one person was telling the other person to do. We very clearly established objectives and goals in a budget together. And it was probably the best thing we ever did. In this case, we used Dave Ramsey's Every Dollar just so that we could see clearly what our goals are, map it out. That's an easy tool for people to use. It's free. So it's simple, easily accessible by both parties. Going down the road, making decisions, you know, we have to be in alignment. And my husband likes to say we're a force multiplier. So where one and one may equal two, we equal 10. Uh, when we're in alignment and on our goals and we're transparent, it's the best thing that could happen to you. I love that phrase. I hope it tickled other people's ears. A force multiplier. <laughs> I love right? That's such a beautiful image. When couples are really in alignment, it's not a one plus one equals two. It's a one plus one equals 10 mm -hmm. or more because you get the synergy yep. of... You're unstoppable. Yeah. You really feel that way, right? When you're in alignment and working together, it just mm -hmm. feels like we can take on the world. We can go after what we want. That's a really right. great feeling, isn't it? Yep. And, it, and it's a mutual... No one's advocating their responsibilities in the relationship going, well, that's just too technical. I can't handle that. Now, I'm the nerd. I'm the spreadsheet queen. I'm uh -huh. the dream killer. <laughs> you know, my husband. Because the spreadsheet, <laughs> the spreadsheets kill the dreams. Yeah, the analysis says this doesn't work. Yeah, yeah. But it's all a negotiation. It's like I respect the, his ability to be incredibly creative and he respects my analytical nature, you know, when we kind of meet in the middle. You know, I've been thinking a lot about the last couple of weeks, kind of that balance between decision making based on an analysis versus decision making based on intuition, right? Like it's, yep. it's probably a simple dichotomy, but. There are people that really love to make decisions primarily based on what do the numbers say or project to say. And there's some people that are mm -hmm. like, I just want to go with my gut. This feels like the right thing to do. And it, it seems like at this point in my journey with money and working with clients is really the optimal solution is when you can get both of those to work together. Like the data analysis side can reveal certain things, but also can miss some things. But the intuition, yeah. like, will lead you to certain conclusions, but also cause you to miss some glaringly obvious things. It's an interesting balance, a, a good point you bring up, because I see so many couples struggle. They save their whole lives and they wait for the retirement to do things. And then somebody has a heart attack, a stroke, they can't do things, cancer, whatever uh, strikes them, and they're never going to be able to do those things. So I'm an adrenaline junkie. So this is, I'm a weird mix. So like I used to race motorcycles. I had a chance to become a sailboat captain, I did, and I am. 
in the Florida Keys. I've had a chance to travel to Alaska. So my, it's an interesting balance because my inner child wants to go, I want to go play, but then I know I have to plan too. But I would tell people, don't wait to have these experiences until you can't move physically because I see it every day and I'm not going to be like that. I'm going to enjoy it while I can. And that's been my kind of frame of reference. I don't want to be in a nursing home in a memory care facility trying to fix other people as an OT, okay? Because <laughs> that's what you revert back to is the job you did, right? So I may do that and torment my poor fellow people in the nursing home. But I became a sailboat captain <laughs> because my dad drove a bus in New York City, right, for so long. And when I found his badge and his hat, he started getting up at 4 o'clock every morning at age 84 thinking he had to go to work every day. And that really hit home. And I had to dissuade him of this idea every morning, like redirect him going, it's okay, dad, somebody's got your shift. You can go back to bed. I feel like I'm probably going to hell for that. But, you know, <laughs> lying to my own father to redirect him. <laughs> but it, it worked. And then the other part of that is I became a captain because I'm like, if I get on a sailboat and sail away, then I'm not going to bother anybody else, right? <laughs> Hopefully, <laughs> if that's what I think I am. <laughs> Wow, what a wonderful, and I appreciate you sharing this story and so tangible is your work and working with people at those last stages when their cognitive functions aren't working fully and their their brains are literally going back to the old, deepest, thickest memories of their experience and drawing those up and directing mm -hmm. them. And for your dad who worked yep. decades as a bus driver, when his brain could no longer reflectively recognize, oh, it's June 12th, 2000, you know, whatever. It just went back to like 1985 driving bus route through New York City, whatever it was. Yeah, even wow. earlier, a lot of people revert back to like to what they did in their 20s or so. Interesting. So, so I'm going to get a Wonder Woman outfit hanging in my closet. So <laughs> maybe that's what I'm <laughs> I was a superhero. <laughs> a superhero. That's great. It's so interesting. I mean, just the way the mind works and what happens to it as it goes through these different life cycles. But I don't want to miss the fact that you said you've raced motorcycles and become a sailboat yeah. captain. And I wouldn't guess if you met with a financial planner before you started either of those activities, they said that's not going to be the best thing for your long-term financial plan. Like you're going to spend a lot of money on those Correct. activities. You know, you would be better to save you know ten thousand, twelve thousand dollars a year and put it in your retirement account. Now I don't know if you made that trade-off decision, but I. I think that's kind of that question, right? Is I wrote down play and plan. How do we plan for our future, be putting things away, but also allow space to play? Because you said, and I love it, my inner child. And, and yeah. that's where I do take a little different stance or strongly different stance than Dave Ramsey, who I think basically says, suppress the inner child until you're completely financially free and then yeah. you'll be able to play. But honestly, I've met enough people that have taken that philosophical approach and like you, the unfortunate life event happens and they don't get to enjoy the accumulated assets or they end up just so rigid about holding on to money that they never really learn how to enjoy using it. Right. So yeah, I love it. Play and plan. Let's, that, and that's to me the beauty of financial planning is we can kind of make some informed guesses about the trade-offs of, you know, if I do this and that's what happens. So There was a book I read not too long ago and it was by a doctor who was a hospice doctor. And he's also he also do, does uh, financial literacy. I think he has a podcast as well. He just wrote the book out, and I wish I could remember the title. But he said nobody on their deathbed ever wished they had saved more. They wish they had more experiences. Almost all of them wish they had more experiences. And that's, you know, I think you have to have that balance. 
as rigid as I could be and as inflexible as I could be when it comes to being the the fun killer. Sometimes you just got to take advantage of opportunities when they arise. It is. And I guess that's part of maybe maturing and self-awareness is knowing our kind of natural inclination and knowing like, when is it time to allow some flexibility into my way of approaching things? Yeah. I think you could plan that in. Like I have a kind of a model because I also work for a company that I work remotely, but I travel a lot. I have my own like little business there with a taking care of old people.com. Yeah. But I work for a company that's their mission is to do neuro rehab at home. Okay. And I travel a lot. I'm a clinical educator and trying to have equitable access to healthcare. So you could do neuro rehab in the comfort of your own home, those kind of things. And I try to plan, set aside some money every quarter for a little fun break because okay. to me that's those are the moments I live for. While I love what I do, I love educating people. If I could get away with my husband, he's my perfect partner. And my amazing husband is what I call him. Oh, I love that. I'm just so fortunate to have met him. And if we could just have these moments, we do road trips together. Like we drove to Alaska from the Florida Keys without a radio. (laughs) And we actually liked each other at the end. (laughs) Wow. There's more story on that one. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And and there was one time we went for a hike together. It was hysterical. It was only supposed to be seven miles. It ended up being like a mile, what was it? A mile in elevation or a thousand feet in elevation for every mile hiked. And it turned out to be like a 15 mile hike. And we're on the downhill side of this and we're broken. We're bad or we didn't have enough water or food. And we're just like stumbling down this mountainside and there's bears all around us. So I started like talking really loud and we started telling jokes and we laughed the entire way down because we're trying to scare bears away is how it started. (laughs) But just to try to boost each other, to carry each other forward to the parking lot, we were like, oh my gosh. So now whenever anything gets hard, we refer to that hike, you know? (laughs) I love that. I think there's so much beauty in that, right? Because those are like, what I've come to appreciate about couples is flourishing couples have those types of stories. And they, Mm -hmm. even when times are hard, they can lean in and lean on each other and come up with a creative way to get through something. And it's, is creating those experiences that I think really cement the relationship together. Oh, yeah. And, and, you know, when I travel so much, my husband's like, there's not so much laughter in my day. And I agree with him. We mm. laugh a lot, a lot every day um, throughout the day. I think those are ideal relationship is when you can laugh more than you fight, you know? <laughs> oh, I like that ratio. I don't know if you know the marriage researcher, uh, John Gottman. He has a... Oh, no, no. His research has borne out that healthy, thriving couples have a five to one positive to negative interaction ratio. And okay. I, you know, the mathematician in, in me loves that. I was like, oh, it was, I mean, it is as simple. And I know all the listeners are like, God, Ed, no, it's not just so easy as just to get the five to one. I, I hate my partner right now. I can't, but yeah, what we can't, it is a health marker of healthy relationships is five to one positive and negative interaction. Anything above that is probably a bonus. So, but laughing together is one of those positive signs that we look for as healthcare providers. Can this couple laugh together? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's little things. Like I noticed we have an electric toothbrush and we have a recharging station that's just a little one, one of them. And when I'm done brushing my teeth, I always put his on the charger. Uh And we're like, that's love. That these little things we do for each other. That's love. Yeah. It's those small acts that, you demonstrate that I care about you, that I'm thinking about you. Right? Yep. And, mm-hmm. and I think those are like the, the flossing your teeth of relationships. 
right? It's you just yeah. do it every day because it's good for you. It helps keep your gums healthy, keeps the relationship fresh and cared for. And it saves a lot of the having to do big grand gestures to try to keep the love alive. Like those are nice, but right. Cause it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't mean anything. Like we don't care about Valentine's day or arbitrary holidays. Cause we're like that all the time. Well, and I, I guess, you know, if we kind of bring this full circle is thinking about occupational therapy is this focus on daily living and the quality of daily life, right? Is there's just so many little things to do for your intimate relationship that can really nurture it and keep it working well and mm-hmm. it, it, I'm feeling functional and healthy and supportive. Yeah. When you start getting older, you get these random aches and pains and you're like, I don't know where that came from, but it could be debilitating. You get cranky when you're in pain. So you try to negotiate all those things as well. Because again, it may limit how you're able to function. For me, I'm a very independent person. And the last thing I want to be is like a burden on my kids because they're they're like, oh, we'll take care of you. And I'm like, no, you're not going <laughs> to. No. You can love me as sons. I don't want you to be my caregiver. Yeah. Well, and that, that becomes a really important conversation, right? It's, in one way, it's nice that your sons are saying, hey, I want to care for you, mom. We're willing to do that. Like that probably speaks to the relationship and the care. But it's also that like being able to talk with them about like, well, this is how I want you to care for me is by loving me, by showing up whether I'm aging at home or if I do have a nursing home. But it's also like, hey, here's the plan. You can hire an OT like me to come help me or a nurse aide or whatever <laughs> you need to do. Oh, some I feel sorry more. for that person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's great. So if you have just a moment, I'd love to hear a little bit more about this neuro rehab work because I do remember talking about that in in the museum when we met. And I think that there's so much excitement about the, for me, around the interface of technology, gaming systems, and neuro rehab. So can we just spend a few minutes as we wrap up this conversation talking about what's happening on the technological front there for neuro rehab? Uh, Sure. The company I work for is called MindMaze. And basically, one of the solutions that they have is if you look at American healthcare, if a person has a stroke, they're in the hospital maybe three days. Then they go to an inpatient rehab facility for, if they're lucky, 15 days. Hopefully they go home after that. And then they may get home health like twice a week. They may go to outpatient twice a week. And then usually in about 12 weeks or so, they're cut off by insurance or limited in in their access to care. Or they may end up in a nursing home for a longer term stay, right? But with the company that I work for, one of the things I'm trying to do is eliminate the gaps and treat where the evidence shows recovery is possible because you need to move thousands of times a day, every day, especially the first 90 days after a stroke. And most importantly, the first, like within the first 30 days of the stroke. So if you think about if you're an inpatient, like if you're in acute care, you're inpatient, you may get 30 minutes of therapy if you're lucky, and you may move 20 or 30 times let's say the arm 20 or 30 times. Inpatient rehab, some research is out there that says in an hour's time out of your 24-hour day, you maybe move the arm 20 or 30 times. And then when you're discharged to home, you probably barely use it because you're sitting on the couch, right? And we call it discharge to couch. So the system that we have um, starts in the hospital. You get trained how to use it in the hospital and it gets sent home with you. So you could do 40 to 50 reps, repetitions in a minute. So in 10 minutes time, you could be doing four to 500 reps. And it may be a longer duration depending on what your particular scenario is. 
Uh, the other thing I love about this is it never replaces a therapist. A therapist is always providing and prescribing your care and your program. So it's a pretty incredible program for neuro recovery that's unlike anything else other. Right now, their focus is upper limb stroke, and then the other one is going to be Parkinson's coming out here in the near future. But it is so hard to get like your loved one in a car after they've had a stroke, get them to the clinic. If you don't have a lot of money, you're not going to be able to have transportation. You're not going to be able to make all your appointments. So right there from an equitable access to care, you're just not going to be able to meet the needs of everybody in the high dose, high intensity that's so desperately needed. So this is a great way to deploy to home. You could do it five days a week. And like I said, think of the repetitions you can get. The evidence says this is what works. Well, that's what, you know, evidence-based practices are so important. That's part of what makes our work mm-hmm. valid and, and substantiated by the science. But I think what struck by me in my understanding of neuroactivity is the connection between the physical body and the neuroactivity that's happening. And you have to have those things working. And once yeah. the stroke happens, there becomes large impairments within the neuroactivity of your brain, which is what impairs right. the physical movement, right? So those things are related. And this is a gross simplification. but what you're saying is we got to get that person moving and in traditional rehab settings, they are not moving nearly enough to help the brain start forming new neural connections, neurogenesis, I think is the right word. If I'm wrong, please correct me. Yeah, there's so much going on neurologically that has to happen and we can stimulate that through physical movement. Is that, am I picking yep. up? A behavioral modification too, because so often people become very passive. Don't get up, don't do this. That's what they're told. So this becomes something that you can own. Like I just work with some yeah. clients out in Fresno and they're like, I am willing to fight and do whatever it takes to get better. Yeah. Can I have this at home? They want it because of that reason. It empowers patients to own their own recovery. And I think that sense of self and that sense of control is one of the few things you have left. That is very powerful. Well, I didn't even think about, I mean, it's so obvious, Angela, as you say, but when you have a stroke, what happens to your sense of self? in that experience and how that becomes diminished. And so Mm -hmm. the behavioral activity and increasing the sense of agency starts to rebuild or re-strengthen that sense of self. Yeah, a lot of people, like there's a a gal who does stroke forward. She was, I believe, a professor before she had her stroke. And now everybody talks about her as a stroke survivor. And she was a whole nother person before she had her stroke. Just because you have a stroke doesn't mean you stop being who you are. And I think that's a really important point. Yeah, we, I mean, that opens up a, a great se- that sense of self or self, sense of self-continuity and what happens after these life events of who am I, who was I before mm-hmm. this, who am I after that? How do we bridge or create some sense of continuity between these things? Angela, we could easily talk for hours about all of this stuff. Yeah. Just so, <laughs> so many layers. But I think, so if people wanted to learn more about this type of neural rehab, it's MindMaze, I guess, MindMaze.com that they can yep. go to. Yep. So let's wrap up the show. Three great resources to track with Angela. She's got TakingCareOfOldPeople.com. Mm-hmm. She works for MindMaze. And she's saying Stroke Forward is a great organization to connect with if, if you, you've been affected by a stroke or someone in your, your social yep. circle. Angela, is there any other things that you want to leave before we finish up today's conversation? Oh, I think everybody should live the life to their fullest and get rid of a lot of the noise and distractions that they're wasting their times with and focus on experiences and focus on the relationships in their life. I think that's so important because once those are cemented, life is really good. And all these other 
social media. I just see people getting destroyed by stuff and hung up on. And I'm just like, I don't care about any of that. What I care about are the, are the uh, significant relationships in my life and deepening those. I love it. That's partly probably why we connect it so well. It's like, that's my mission is to help people just yep. create meaningful, strong relationships that then lead to creating incredible experiences together. And those things walk hand in hand. And so thank you yep. so much for your generosity and, and kindness. I know you're doing incredible work out there in the world and know that I'm cheering you on as you go on and continue to support people. Thanks for being with us. Thank you very much. I invite you now to stop for five or 10 minutes and reflect on what you just heard. Maybe even journal about it. Give yourself the time to consider what you just heard and what it means to you. By giving yourself the time to reflect and integrate what you just heard, it will help you along your journey of learning, healing, and growing towards financial intimacy in your life. Please like and follow this podcast and share with someone that would benefit from being on the journey of financial intimacy. Wishing you healthy love and money, Ed. Ed.